This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're talking about the film American Beauty and the theme of midlife crisis. Helen, kick us off. Okay, well, no, no, like, um, high-octane diatribe for me today. Just a few ideas that I've gathered together. So, um, you know, obviously this idea of uh, midlife crisis. What is a midlife crisis? I think uh, we all know one when we see one, but I'm not sure uh, really if there is like a, a precise theory of the midlife crisis. So I had a little bit of a, th- a think about what I think a midlife crisis could be. And we've talked a lot about, you know, the Lacanian notion of desire and the lost object and fantasy and how as humans, we, re- we revolve, we orbit around these impossibilities. Um, and one of our predicaments is if we get what we want, uh, we realise that the fantasy is just that, a fantasy, and that the reality of that fantasy is highly depressing because the fantasy that really has given us a sort of libidinal, libidinal investment um, in life has been um, exposed for in all its greyness and impotence, so we become melancholic. And then on the other hand, if we don't get it um, and it's there in the distance and we feel this great pain of distance and separation from it, we can become highly depressive. And I think that um, the midlife crisis perhaps is often that depressive side of things where um, in society, you know, we're we're obedient citizens. We get professional jobs. We do what we have to do to have 2.2 children and sort of continue on the day to day drudgery. And we realize that obviously the thing we wanted to do is far from us. And at a certain point in our life, I don't know, 40s, 50s, or whatever, we realise we're never going to get that, that thing that perhaps sustains our libido, you know, and the, the man getting the fast car, it could be his, you know, his his real masculinity and his ability, ability to attract a highly attractive woman or something like that. So but potentially, yeah, that experience of the midlife crisis is really this frenetic, depressive realisation that that lost object, which of course would never be fulfilling anyway, um, has been so um, far from the individual because they've had to, you know, quote unquote, repress. This film is quite interesting on repression, and I'm not sure I d- agree with its perspective on repression. I think it's sort of got that like more, um, you know, anti anti establishment liberal perspective of d- repression that all repression is bad. But we've, um, you know, foregone what we've wanted in order to conform, in order to have a paycheck, um, and so. At a certain point, we realise this is the last chance or we're never going to be able to live this fantasy um, ever again. And obviously, at a certain point in, in our lives, we have to come to the understanding that we will never get the, get, the, uh, get the fantasy. But of course, even if we did, it would be shit. And maybe that word philosophical, that weird word philosophical, having a philosophical relationship is something that we, we maybe get to um, when we really understand the dynamic at play. But it is interesting as well, you know, all of these people on the street are highly successful, quote unquote, you know, you have a doctor, the gay couple, there's a doctor, and I'm not sure what the other one does, and a real estate agent, obviously, she's a little bit embarrassing. He has a corporate job and a military colonel, but they're all highly miserable. So I guess that that notion that if we pursue the the American dream or the capitalist fantasy, we're going to be disappointed as well. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk about was there's something that I always found really um, spoke to me when I was growing up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's um, maybe something I have a different, uh, you know, vision of now. I'm a bit older, but you'd see these uh, films. For instance, I remember um, the final uh, in the before before sunrise series, um, where 
you know, they're a bit older and they, they are having sort of, sort of all kinds of issues. I think they might even be divorced. And the Julie Delkley character, I remember watching it for the first time thinking like, she's, she's so miserable. She's such a miserable woman. She's like lost, she's lost what it is, lost that, you know, um, joie de vivre and like ability to enjoy. And um, I remember my sister and I having a conversation about this being like, oh, I hope I never become like that. And of course, you know, um, the Kevin Spacey character at the beginning, Lester says to his wife, oh, you used to be so happy. And she's become this sort of miserable, pernickety, disappointed person. And I think, you know, it is one of these things that's so difficult as a human um, to not fall into resentment, you know, like toxic spiritual resentment, because life is so disappointing and so difficult. And we often are so uh, let down either by achieving our fantasy or by not having our fantasy at all. And, you know, obviously, resentment is a totally legitimate thing, because think life is unfair, and we need, we need reasons and like emotional motivations to do something about them. But of course, because of the split we've been talking about so much in human subjectivity, we always have, you know, a logical sort of reasonable aspect of the phenomenon and then this like over-attachment, spiritual, unconscious, fantastical, libidinal dimension. And so that resentiment versus resentment is uh, is the challenge that we always we always have to face as humans, um, not to be that like Nietzschean spiritual sickness. You know, and I, I mean, obviously, um, I think sometimes there's this, you know, perspective of an older woman that you can see when you're younger and think, oh, I'm never going to become like that sort of dry and washed up. But like, you know, it definitely happens. But of course, she goes through her own, um, her own uh, midlife crisis as well. Um, yeah, I think that's maybe all I have to say for now. I'd really love to talk uh, to pick up again on repression later on, because I think this film deals with the question of repression in quite an interesting way. All right, Nina, where go? Right, yeah. Um, it was interesting to watch this film again. I watched it when it came out in 1999, and actually I enjoyed it uh, more than I thought I would, re-watching it uh, in 2021. Um, apart from the soundtrack, which, um, the, well, rather more specifically the theme song, which I think got turned into some pop rave classic in the late 90s or early 2000s, and as such has this kind of incredibly irritating quality because I've heard it too many times, that little do, 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 uh, that little motif. Um, <laughs> so apart from that, <laughs> and also it's, it's a very interesting film to watch um, from the standpoint of m media and recording, um, it's obviously before the kind of uh, the internet in a way becomes a big deal. Uh, there are a couple of scenes, I think, where uh, the daughter at least is on the internet. She's looking for a, a boob uh, breast enhancement, which is bizarre because her breasts are actually incredibly beautiful when she does show them and, and actually quite large. So I'm not quite sure why they, they think that she would have this pathology. But then those sorts of pathologies never normally make sense. And uh, there are many films at this time that actually... Uh, explore this idea of breast enhancement being a kind of fantasy of um, women, which one argument uh, stems from this idea of the uh, Jessica Rabbit character in uh, which, which, uh, which film was that? The, the sort of mixture of film. Who and killed cartoon. Roger Rabbit. Who killed Roger Rabbit, right? So there's a kind of almost conspiracy theory that suggests that Jessica Rabbit, the cartoon, became the, a psyop for this desire to have incredibly large and improbably cartoonish breasts at this time in the late 90s. Anyway, that is a stranger side <laughs> about breasts. But um, 
anyway, uh, it's yes, also interesting uh, because uh, the Lester Burnham character, the Kevin Spacey character, is, is forty two in the film, which. Um, and he seems like a kind of old 42, especially, I suppose, from my point of view, as someone who isn't married and doesn't have children, that this man who has, you know, been in this corporate world for a long time is obviously stuck in this kind of, uh, you know, fake, happy, loveless uh, performance of a marriage and, you know, has a kind of, you know, grumpy but interesting uh, teenage daughter. Um, you know, the, he, he seems much older in a certain way than, than maybe 42 can seem uh, <laughs> uh, these days. Um and, you know, this kind of oscillation between being I'm dead already, this, you know, the, the idea that masturbation is the high point of his day at the beginning, um, this idea of being a loser, I've lost something, very 90s thing. Uh, the teenage daughter is also uh, constantly talking about how her father is a loser. And, you know, the worst thing you could say to someone in the 90s was get a life and this idea that, you know, so the this kind of uh, dynamic of being alive and being dead or being dead already and somehow having lost something, um, you know, and he, he often refers to this idea. He says, I've lost something. He says he's sedated. He says, let's just sell our souls to Satan because it's more convenient that way. This idea of a kind of... Um, a sort of empty zombie materialism, which was also explored in films like Train Spotting from this period as well. Um, a, you know, a, a kind of almost Marcusean critique of consumer capitalism that, that that somehow stands in. You also get this in in Punk in the Dead Kennedys, Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death, uh, amazing record. Um, but it kind of carried on from the sort of you know eighties and nineties, although it's a much longer kind of critique of uh, consumer culture um kevin spacey's character says i've been in a coma for 20 years um the uh friend angela hayes the the sexy uh friend of or the you know supposedly attractive uh friend of uh the daughter says there's nothing worse in life than being ordinary so the other kind of dynamic one of the dynamics of this film is this idea of being uh ordinary or not ordinary she calls uh her friend and her her boyfriend uh, freaks. Uh, this is also a kind of you know important model. The the model of the 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 outsider relationship you also saw in Natural Born Killers uh, and other films too from this uh, period. Um, but the kind of not being ordinary that Angela uh, wants to invoke is one of being uh, desired. She wants to be a model. She wants to be kind of looked at. She thinks that it's uh, you know in a way the greatest thing to be kind of wanked over because um at least then someone sort of you know is thinking about you in some ways uh which is kind of even though in a way her performance of being a slut is also a, a fantasy because of course she's not actually having sex with anyone else revealed in the the scene where she she admits that she's a virgin and the whole thing kind of uh the fantasy of that falls apart for um the Kevin Spacey character because he can't quite go through with it although apparently they were in the film. They were debating whether they should actually have that scene be be as um, graphic, you know, to to go through with it or not. So it was a kind of open question until they decided um, that he shouldn't. Um, so yeah, and, and on the question of midlife crisis specifically, just to finish, I wonder, you know, I mean, I, I would definitely, I don't know whether it's it's. I, I take Helen's point about the kind of uh, the fantasy, uh, you know, the idea of wanting something that you don't have. And in a way, of course, that never quite fulfilling what it is that you think you want. But at least that sort of the attempt. So the man gets the sports car or, you know, the younger girlfriend or whatever, or, or goes on a world trip or, you know, the woman, I don't know, does something similar. Um, but but 
I think in my experience of midlife crisis, which was quite, <laughs> quite catastrophic in a way, but in a beautiful way, um, that it's actually for me at least more a realization of um, that you're you're still you're sort of doing things that you you no longer want to do, or perhaps you just didn't want to do, and that actually the 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 crisis the breakthrough is realizing that you don't have to do them. So rather than wanting something else, uh, it's more a kind of um, retraction from you know all of the things that you're supposed to want to do so I, I like to think of this as a kind of a form of noble failure and uh you know to sort of re-embrace the the loser in a way to kind of uh to uh make dignified something of the of the loss or the lack um by simply retreating or pulling back from um you know all those things that are, you're you're supposed to be plugged into all those things you're supposed to care about whether it's a job or you know recognition or status so i'm i'm quite interested in this idea of midlife crisis as a kind of withdrawal from the world um to to embrace the uh the loser position somehow mm. all right it's my turn in american beauty kevin spacey is stuck in a midlife crisis he hates his job he's in a loveless marriage and his daughter hates him I love this kind of stuff. I eat it up. There's something magical to me about the middle-aged person who discovers all of a sudden that the life they've spent decades building is a prison. You know how it goes. Early in life, you take a job to pay the bills. It's not your dream job, but it provides a level of security. It's a tactical concession to the realities of life. You think you can handle it, but slowly the frustration builds. To distract yourself from the terrible job, you buy expensive things you don't need. But those things are just temporary fleeting distractions. Like the marijuana Spacey smokes in the film, they buy only a temporary respite. Before long, these things feel empty too. Back in 1767, Adam Ferguson described this predicament well. In his essay on the history of civil society, he writes, men of business and of industry in the inferior stations of life retain their occupations and are secured by a kind of necessity in the possession of those habits on which they rely for their quiet and for the moderate enjoyments of life. But the higher orders of men, if they relinquish the state, if they cease to possess that courage and elevation of mind and to exercise those talents which are employed in its defense and in its government, are in reality, by the seeming advantages of their station, become the refuse of that society of which they were once the ornament, and from being the most respectable and the most happy of its members, are become the most wretched and corrupt. In their approach to this condition, and in the absence of every manly occupation, they feel a dissatisfaction and languor which they cannot explain. They pine in the midst of apparent enjoyments, or by the variety and caprice of their different pursuits and amusements, exhibit a state of agitation which, like the disquiet of sickness, is not a proof of enjoyment or pleasure, but of suffering and pain. The care of his buildings, his epicage, or his table is chosen by one. Literary amusement or some frivolous study by another. The sports of the country and the diversions of the town, the gaming table, dogs, horses, and wine are employed to fill up the blank of a listless and unprofitable life. They speak of human pursuits as if the whole difficulty were to find something to do. They fix on some frivolous occupation as if there was nothing that deserved to be done. They consider what tends to the good of their fellow creatures as a disadvantage themselves. They fly from every scene in which any efforts of vigor are required 
or in which they might be allured to perform any service to their country. We misapply our compassion in pitying the poor. It were much more justly applied to the rich who become the first victims of that wretched insignificance into which the members of every corrupted state by the tendency of their weakness and their vices are in haste to plunge themselves. It is in this condition that the sensual invent all those refinements on pleasure and devise those incentives to a satiated appetite, which tend to foster the corruptions of a dissolute age. Sensual pleasures are a poor substitute for a meaningful social role. What is a single young adult to do? They do what the pop music says. They go looking for love. They get a spouse and some kids. And for a while, the excitement of all of that is enough to push down the disquiet. But eventually, even the family becomes tedious. It takes years, even decades. But eventually, the middle-aged man confronts the reality that none of what he has done has genuine value. He still hates his job. And the objects he's acquired and the kids he's had don't change that. They're just ways of papering over his lack. But what can he do now? He's 40, 50, or 60 years old. He has to maintain a house and a set of kids. He can't just run away and start over. If he did, it would be the height of irresponsibility. So he tries to soldier on without soldiering on. He slowly destroys his relationship with his spouse, with his kids. He finds a way to lose his job. If everyone despises him, they can expect nothing from him. The more he is loathed, the freer he becomes. But what does he use the freedom to do? There was a reason he took the meaningless job in the first place all those years ago. He couldn't find a way to reconcile his values with the world around him. There wasn't a social role available to him, which permitted that reconciliation. That was why he made the concession, why he started down this path. Decades later, he's back in the same predicament. The only thing that's changed is that he's created people who rely on him, people he can hurt. He neglects his children, and in doing so, he gives them a problem far worse than his own. At the end of the film, Kevin Spacey's daughter runs off with a drug dealer to live in New York City. Every day in America, this story repeats again and again. When many people watch American Beauty, they focus on the subplot surrounding the drug dealer's homophobic father. But that's not what makes the movie interesting. It's Kevin Spacey. It's the predicament of the man who finds his way out of ideology, only to discover that he can only escape by discarding the people around him. And once he has escaped, the meaningful social role remains elusive. And so once more, he buys objects to make himself feel better. Kevin Spacey buys that firebird. Kevin Spacey takes a frivolous job at a fast food restaurant. Kevin Spacey develops a crush on a girl. The more things change, the more they're the same. You know, it's interesting what you just said about, you know, he abandons ideology and he has to abandon sort of social relationships. It's interesting, like almost, you know, obviously he dies, he gets shot. This, this is what has to happen, right? You know, we talked about this, you know, a number of times about how does society handle the one that won't abide, you know? But yeah, and also I think Nina, you mentioned mentioned a couple of times ago about you know any any revolutionary leader who has actually been genuinely revolutionary, you can tell that they have been because they have to be taken out, you know. So um, sort of get rid of Kevin Spacey by the end. I also you know the retraction thing. I think that's absolutely right, Nina. Like I have to say, any any crisis, um, say subject title crisis I've ever experienced, maybe quarter life or whatever, is it? Yeah, it's definitely to do with like a, re a retraction. You know, you. The libidinal investment that you have in something, you know, it just doesn't, you can't do it anymore. You just can't, you know, and you have to, you, I, I've always found if I go through like a crisis like that, you have to sort of like withdraw completely until you're able to find a way, almost like find the logic again to like rehook into reality. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you would say reality there, because I guess for me, it was like I had to recover my health, which took about a year. And partly that was, you know, involved, um, you know, plugging into nature and health in this way, because I'd become so distant from that reality. Um, you know, and it's still a kind of endless quest in a way. But it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I think Benjamin's right. Like, um that the yeah replacing desire into into the same objects whether it's a younger woman or a, a flasher car you know is this it that's the horrible karmic cycle that's samsara like that's the the night you know if you can hook your desire you know either you, you know the withdrawal of libido and then the kind of re uh, attachment to something else like hopefully something healthier like I mean, many many of these jobs that people do are just incredibly unhealthy, just in and of themselves, physically, practically. You know, the driving in your car to sit in an office. You know, I mean, we're also at the end of that kind of image of work too, for multiple reasons. Like the pandemic just sped up a certain thing that was happening. You know, whether we're talking about uh, automation or data entry or homeworking or whatever. You know, the obviously the service industry still persists and. Uh, you know, manufacture exists, but not so much in the West. It's, you know, been moved elsewhere, right? But it's, so you have this kind of whole category of people who, in a way, don't, A, don't need to work or don't need to work so much, or if they do work, they can work, you know, they don't have to go to anywhere to do it. Um, So there's the kind of end of the era of the office job as well, that sort of spacey explodes. Um, Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but I think this is like really the tra- challenge of being human. It's like, how do you, how do you deal with this? You know, and there comes a point you're like, can you find a way to healthily engage in quote, quote unquote reality? Like whatever that is. Like, mm. you know, A, you know, you have to navigate, know what you actually want to do, navigate a world that's totally unfair and actually toxic and not constructive to your healthy life at all. And then have all of these sort of psychic delusions as well, you know, that, that, that we believe the promise lies and all these different things. And it's like, it's, 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 it's such a, it's such a difficult thing. And I, I often find that like at different periods of your life, you can find ways and then lose your way and then find your way again. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's such a tricky thing to be a human person. You know? <laughs> I think, I think, I suppose one of the things maybe is just, I don't know almost like very simple things it's like do you know your own mind do you know what you think about this person or this situation it's like you you sort of always think you do but actually you don't and often you just go along with whatever is going on and you know you don't want to cause a fuss and you you know someone seems like they know what they're talking about so you're like oh maybe they do you know so I don't know you I think you know age is sort of like a simplification almost it's like you know the Delphic, uh, or you know the Oracle, know thyself is actually extremely difficult. Like you think it's really easy, but it's not. You know, and this idea of like understanding your own desire in terms of your weaknesses as well. It's like everybody has tendencies and pathologies, and some of them are negative. And you know, <laughs> the more you sort of try to understand what they are, at least you don't have to sort of necessarily repeat them in this. I'm sorry, wait, it doesn't mean that you'll become perfect or even better, but maybe like 5% better, which is sort of all you can hope for, really. I think absolutely. You know, as I'm as I'm watching this, you know, I think about the millennial parent mantra, 
know, the mm. millennial parent who tells you to, to do something that you love, to do something that you're passionate about, right? Right up until the point at which that conflicts too obviously with your financial stability and your ability to complete all of the items on the millennial parent checklist for the things you're supposed to do, right? And then at that point, it's, well, just get something, get something that's stable. <laughs> and I think that there's there's both a wisdom and foolishness in the millennial parent's vision, because of course, if you don't get a job or social role that you actually find fulfilling on some level, then you will be absolutely miserable. But there's an enormous scarcity of such roles for any given person Unless you're very fortunate, it's very unlikely that a person will actually be able to find a role which meshes with the kinds of things that would give them meaning. And so you are you're in a, a fundamental trap because if you just make the concession, you know, the conservative response is, well, all of that was a bunch of hokey nonsense. You should just take something that's sensible. But if you do take something that's sensible, then you'll get stuck on the Kevin Spacey path and you'll end up in the Kevin Spacey situation as so many people do. Uh, and yet, if you refuse to take something sensible, then you may end up absolutely destitute. I think what we tend to see is, is people who end up like Kevin Spacey and people who end up on drugs, dead, uh, very early in life, who end up dropping out and plunged into instability from which they tend to not recover very early in life. Uh, and only a very small number of people who end up actually in a social role that they find sufficiently fulfilling that it can be an anchor point for them over a long period of time. So we get these kind of the despair of the youth who can't find something, but also can't make do, can't concede to the roles that are there. And then the despair of middle age for the person who does manage to concede, but that concession can't be permanent. And there's also the, you know, the absolute horror often that you have to go through to do things that you actually want to do, A, because it's not conducive to capitalist society or whatever so things obstacles can be in your way and things that you think will be logical and whatever absolutely aren't but often in order to know what you want to do and to um feel that it's worth not conceding often there are things that unfortunately you have to you know everything is so hard earned you know psychically you know you have to go through quite potentially um difficult things early on in life and have early crises um, that make it you come to realize that it's absolutely not worth it to put yourself through things that you know will end up in you will end up in a Kevin Spacey situation later on and then have to ignore all of the you know the super egoic call of society to keep doing things that you're supposed to do it goes both ways right because mm -hmm. if you if you refuse to do the Kevin Spacey thing then you may be plunged into a level of economic insecurity that's so intense that the, the stress of it will destroy you, right? And yet, if you embrace the Kevin Spacey path, then you set yourself up to cope in dysfunctional ways that lead to midlife crisis. So that the young person is in this awful situation where whichever move they make, they will be plunged into a long-term period of psychic distress that is so great that it will eventually unravel everything. And either they take it immediately in the form of the insecurity that comes with trying to stand up for what it is that they would like to do, or they take it later at the added cost that when they return to it in 20 or 30 years, they're older, they're less capable of coming up with something new to do anyway. 
uh, and they may have children that cause it to be deeply morally troubling for them to abandon that life and that path. And so it's 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 a no-win situation. And I, I love watching movies about this because I love thinking about what a no-win situation it is and just how fucked everybody is. Because <laughs> what do you do? So positive. Do, do you do what the what the the boyfriend does in the movie, you know, the boyfriend mm-hmm. who just deals drugs and then runs off to New York to live with other drug dealers. But can I can I defend the boyfriend and actually the daughter as well? Because they, they, one of the interesting scenes that there's repeated is the accounts. They both do their accounts. Right. I don't know if you noticed this, but she she has an account book and it's her babysitting money and he has an account book. Oh, It's actually on the spreadsheet. So the spreadsheet shifts to the breast enhancement page. Um when she's on a computer and she's making a note of all of her expenses and Inga, you know, the money she's made. And she tells him later on, she's saved up 3000 pounds for babysitting and he, and he's got 40,000 pounds from drug dealing. And I think actually he's a, a remarkable model of someone who follows his desire. I mean, his desire is to capture beauty, which he does in this, this recordings, you know, and he's obsessed with filming and, you know, it's a very, he's extremely driven. He speaks very, very beautifully about it in that monologue about beauty um, you know, the, the plastic bag aside, I mean, whether you find that scene cringe or not, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's it's very, it's potentially very cringe. But, you know, there's something kind of moving about his relation to images, I think. And in a way, he, he, he uses the money from the dealing to fund his desire, which is the, the filming, it seems to me. And I actually think in a way, he's a kind of heroic character. Um uh, you know, and, and when he says to her, if I if I asked you to leave tonight to go to New York with me, would you say yes? I mean, I would say yes if I <laughs> in that situation. But it, it is it is true though, you know, like because um, as you say, you know, it's highly responsible. No, you know, their their mm-hmm. money earning, etc. In a way, um, but also, you know, um, the Mina Savari character does sort of say say the the very stark opposite which you're, you're just going to go with a drug dealer to new york or whatever but so you know in a sense there is the, the thing of nobody is um in, in order to fund his art he has to do something you know but how bad is marijuana dealing really you know um although of course at that time it would cost a lot of people extreme you know um conditions if they were caught uh, doing it but yeah i mean you're right i think it's also interesting you know that the the publicising for the film, the poster, etc., is the Mina Savari character as mm. you know, American Beauty is her, and um, you know there's the 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 teenage son um, sort of perspective of seeing beauty everywhere in a bin bag, etc., <laughs> etc. Et so it, it, I just think it is interesting that she is sort of pegged as the the key feature in the film, as if it's about her and her beauty, but she's a very very minor nothing character essentially but american beauty is also a type of rose which I, this is like trivia but it's a it's a type of rose that rots really easily so there's a kind of play on this whole idea you know and of course the rose petals are part of his fantasy not hers and she's not what of course what he thinks she is and she's not what she presents herself to be either she's not actually running around having sex with men she is a virgin you know he is you know lusting after something he doesn't even really want i mean you know she's of course she's she's you know beautiful and attractive and and she's the kind of 
trigger for his crisis in some ways but it's not her exactly like you know the fantasy of course is never actually the the person and you know she's a teenage girl I mean she's a kind of frivolous girl in a way and so it's it's I don't know but yeah but you're right the poster I mean the advertising I think the branding of the film and it was like this it was a massive film at the time I mean it was huge it was like you know it's partly probably why I I probably imagined I wouldn't like it so much because it was I don't know it was everywhere for a long time you know and I think films had a bigger slightly bigger purchase in the common psyche in the 90s than they do now right where everything is much more differentiated and I actually think watching it now one of the interesting things is about the role of looking and recording and the way you know that when the daughter says about I don't want a Kodak moment you know the idea of a Kodak moment is so seems so archaic now compared to like Instagram you know I don't know TikTok selfies like that whole thing you know the the idea of taking a of seeing oneself as looked at in the freeze frame and the fact that he's very interested in recording and everything is recorded but but it seems very primitive now compared to this ultra recorded surveilled self surveilled selfie you know culture like it's kind of the i don't know either it's the end of a, an earlier model or it's the beginning of this thing we're in now the paradigm that we're in you look at those younger characters and they're kind of the next generation of this. And they have to decide whether they're going to make the same mistakes which Kevin Spacey and his wife made. Mm. And I think that you know, when you, you look at the, uh, the, the girl who is the, the very attractive girl and the boy who is the drug dealer, and they have the, throughout the movie, they stipe at each other. They both really don't like each other. And you know, the audience is kind of asked to take, I, I think some, you could read this movie as being, you're being asked to take the side of the drug dealer against her side. But I, I always like to read it as they're both right. Yet neither one of them is going to be happy. I don't think. I think they're both, they're both set up for disaster. And they're both right about the ways in which the other is vapid. I think they're both right. And so the trouble is, if they're both right, then what is to be done? And and the trouble is that I think in the 90s, we we asked this question a lot. And I think a lot of movies in different ways ask it. They point out none of this makes any sense. None of this works. Nobody's happy. What is to be done? And the answer is there's no alternative because it's the 90s. It's the end of history. There's no alternative. There isn't anything else you can do you have a bunch of bad choices, a, a bunch of bad options, and your freedom consists in that you have the capacity to move from one stupid option, one bad choice, one false path to another. And that's why I really like this movie, because I don't read it as, <laughs> as just kind of a straightforward, uh, you know, oh, of, of course, the drug dealer is the brave person who's being his authentic <laughs> yeah. liberal self. Yeah, exactly. You could read it that way, but I don't. I read it as, as they're both right. Both of them mm -hmm. are on paths that lead nowhere. Absolutely. I think that's that's correct. And also, I mean, just to go back to what you were saying, you know, of course, like the um, the hot girl's fantasy is to be photographed, you know, to be a model. Surely that's what everybody wants. And um, it's interesting as well. I always think about like red carpets. It's like my idea of like absolute horror, like, oh, but like how if you have um, somebody pointed this out to me and I don't know what he was trying to say by pointing this out, but it is maybe something relevant here is that let's say you have an actress. And their Wikipedia page, the picture of them on their Wikipedia page is always them, generally, um, on a red carpet being photographed. So there is this sort of thing of like being being photographed as some 
some pinnacle, but of course everybody is so photographed endlessly now. So does that does that devalue it? Also, you know, talk about generations. I was thinking about this, like how old are those kids now? You know, they're the old elder millennials. Um, they're sort of, I guess, would be late thirties now. You mean, you Bitter, mean the, act, the actors? Well, the the, the characters. Yeah, the you know, characters. characters. So let's say they're they're leaving high school in ninety nine. That would make them. Well, like a, a guess 40? Pretty close that, to Pete Buttigieg's age. I see, yeah. That's what you're saying. I was wondering why you're saying that, but yeah, that makes sense. Who? Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, so in real life also, the act, the actors are around, yeah, between sort of 39, 40, 41, 42, which is also Kevin Spacey's age in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the end of Gen X, basically. I guess, very, or very early millennials. Yeah, because I was going to say, they, they seem very Gen X-y to me. Like, they seem yeah. like extremely Gen X. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, I, yeah, I would definitely relate to these sorts of characters in yeah. a certain way, right? No, no, I mean, gen- genuinely, in terms of, I, I think also that relation to, to recording, I mean, obviously the boy is, uh, you know, unique in the sense that he's recording all the time and that's unusual. But I think that that, you know, the video, VHS was the thing you know like that i don't know how to put it like that that technology and yeah some of the ways in which also it's like it like this in ghost world i mean which was um thora birch's other main film there's something very very um indie very specific about her character in both of these films which is extremely 90s somehow like this kind of um slightly withdrawn slightly strange slightly sulky kind of indie thing like uh it's very specific to this time and i think ghost world especially which is obviously the film that launches scarlett johansson's career in a way uh really really digs down into this thing uh this kind yeah and it isn't a kind of end of history way of being like a kind of almost like a nothingness but a kind of it's because we're not yet at the era of like complaint and mm-hmm. she you does, know sort of yeah she does have she, that. She does, go on. I was going to say the mum has that. Can I speak to the manager here for sure? But it's not you know it's really not like <laughs> um, I hate that whole Karen Bean by the way. I think it's like really just unnecessarily like um, if anything sexist. I think it's that and also racialist and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, but like I, you know there is something in you know it's the mystique, the interest in the mystique, and it's this is like the pre. What they call it, pixie manic dream girl character. It's, oh, it's yeah. before. It's like the, it's the generation before this, um, and you write also. You know the filming like reality bites. The similar yeah. sort of like filming going on. Well, it's this idea of be, being alternative. I suppose mm-hmm. it's like alternative means something sort of. It's like still a vague possibility. Do you think it's to do, you know, with what what Benjamin's saying about the sort of like nothing works and it's having it's having the sort of like. I don't know, quote unquote, superiority of the insight of knowing the sort of cynicism, you know, that nothing works. I don't know, because obviously it's not, that's not a position, that's sort of a position that this film is taking, the sort of knowing cynical position. So obviously the alternative has to still be attractive enough to a lot of people to be broadcast as the main character in a, in a film like this or a principal character. But yeah. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people are, are in the situation that the attractive girl is in where you know, they've been put in a situation where all that is left is for them to get fucked. And the question is, by whom? And it's not going to work out for them 
whichever way it goes. You know, that's yeah. the only interesting thing left that they can decide is how to get fucked and by whom. In a way, she's she's far more the precursor to a certain mode of being, you know, like the visual, mo- you know, the fully visual self-branding, you know, thing or OnlyFans or whatever. Yeah, she's yeah. like this. She's, she's the precursor. Yeah, she, far more than the Sora um, Birch character. Yeah. Which yeah. seems to, with that kind of mode of being seems to have more or less disappeared, or maybe you just wouldn't know about that kind of person because, in a way, they wouldn't be online in the same. way. I mean, you know, I, I, think, I think I think it's that you wouldn't know about that kind of person because they yeah. wouldn't be online in the same way. I don't think it's gone. I think there's still a lot of girls who feel a kind of discomfort with their body and uh, are not wanting to to show yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, there's another depressing route we could go down with that on the tomboy thing, but yeah, I mean, I think. It, there are different ways of feeling bad about the same things that people have always felt bad about. <laughs> exactly. And I have to say, you know, like, I think a lot of, a lot of it, just to maybe touch on what you're saying, you know, like a lot of girls go through this sort of like, um, and maybe guys do as well, but I, you know, have a woman, as they say. Um, but you know, like, you know, you, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Definitely an experience that I have had. And, you know, you choose a poison, you know, to you, um, you know, there's no, there's no solution to 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 everything that like that character is thinking about um but it's interesting like, also in terms of like the parental relationship with the daughter it's a very unmillennial you know this sort of like let her be she's just in her room doing mm. what she was i think the millennial parent would be like have you done your homework what was your grade you know are you thinking about doing an internship you know etc cetera, etc cetera. what college application have you done <laughs> like that it's very much that's a very non-millennial parents yeah, I think Gen X parenting or whatever, you know, the boomer, that particular period, boomer Gen X relation was uh, really uh, hands off. I don't know. I mean, it's we were always generalizing from, you know, and of course, the different class things and aspects and so on. But yeah, like you being a teenager was largely to be like completely left alone mm-hmm. it, I, in my recollection. Like there was no one in saying, do your homework or have you thought about this or whatever like <laughs> it was just but interestingly to talk about the the, the repressed marine colonel mm. you know into to, to do with knowledge and to do with parenting because obviously you know as donald Rumsfeld says and the Jack always jokes like the known knowns the unknown knowns the known unknowns you know there's a lot of unknown knowns as in he's choosing to know, unknow what he already knows about his son you know he's doing the drug tests etc so he obviously knows on a certain level but it's blatantly obvious that he's um not um he's not earning money through waiting jobs etc etc so yeah and obviously to do with that that upper middle well i guess that sort of middle upper middle class american dream lifestyle there's a lot of um deliberately chosen unknown knowns or known unknowns you know, things that were sort of kept at bay in the unconscious and obviously this the, the the setting is very similar to the opening of blue velvet you know which uh so so um david lynch dealing with things that i guess you know, similar themes in, in different ways but i think the garden of um the burnham house is deliberately similar to, to the opening of blue blue velvet the roses and white cricket fence, etc., and the red, white, and blue, blue skies, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, I mean, on the repression point, I mean, there is something a bit um, clunky one has to say about that. You know, like so the sort of the repressed um, homosexual 
military man who sees yeah. homosexuality everywhere and suspects his son of you know is a you know is projection of his own thing. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to have Kevin Spacey who, um, you know, is is gay, I guess, largely. Although he also plays a bisexual character in uh, um, uh, House of Cards, you know. That there's something very sexually ambiguous about Kevin Spacey um, as an actor, as a human being. It's something incredibly charismatic too. I mean, he's a fantastic actor in everything he's in. I think, and but the 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 I don't know. There's some yeah. There's something very clunky and quite nineties also about the idea that the 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 army, the military, the violent military man who hates gay people is actually you know has homosexual feelings. You know, it's like that's yeah. very simplistic. I, I think know. as well, like, always, you know, there's logic and a contradiction in all logic, and you have to tell a film from a perspective. You know, you have to sort of, like, have a track of, like, something that is being, you know, a narrative form, but there's always going to be contradictions. I think the contradiction comes out in the repression thing, because as we see in the whole of the rest of the film, it's the whole ambivalent, you damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, but the, 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 it seems that the repression question is, like, universally bad, you know the sexual repression, the repressive families, and as you say, the most obvious one, the military man who's gay, you know. Um, but actually, you know, as we know, repression is much more ambivalent than that, like totally polyvalent and complex and not just the solution. The utopian solution is not to just do away with repression either. I mean, that's a total liberal fantasy, very capitalistic liberal fantasy, the idea that there can be no repression, simple as, mm. you know, that we're progressing to an era beyond repression, but repression, you know, removal removal of quote unquote repression whatever that really is you know oh, without a doubt the the military man is the weakest part of the movie and the reason that he's the weakest part of the movie is that they need a character to kill kevin spacey and murder is a very rare thing and doesn't happen very often and so to have a character that will kill somebody you have to create a character that is very unlike most people that we meet in real life uh, or a character who behaves inconsistently, who seems like people that we know in real life, but will randomly behave differently uh, for plot purposes. And so because they've decided that the conceit of it is that he's going to be dead at the end of it, because they don't know what else to do with him, because what else would you do with him? There's no solution to his problem. Uh, because of that, they have to come up with some kind of contrivance to get him killed. And that's what the whole homophobia plot is. Uh, it's a contrivance to kill him in a kind of mysterious way. And it's the most superficial part of the whole film. Uh, and, and that's why I, I think it's almost not even worth talking about very much. Uh, and of course, a lot of liberals have loved this idea that everybody who is socially conservative is just a repressed gay person. It's a way of not taking seriously those values and points yeah, of view. Absolutely. Isn't it more ambiguous who kills him? Yeah, I mean, it's like, quite ambiguous. Well, yeah. well he's got Could, blood all over his T-shirt. Yeah, but doesn't she also have the gun? His wife. I don't know. Maybe it's not. So uh, when, when, the, when the gun goes off, she's still coming into the house. Mm -hmm. oh. She hasn't entered the house yet. She has, definitely has the intention. <laughs> she also, she has been rehearsing this whole speech to tell yeah. to him. And so uh, she wouldn't just sneak up behind him and shoot him in the head because <laughs> she's been rehearsing this speech in the car. She wants to give him a big speech. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And only only military people are evil enough to kill people, just like police are. Only, you know, when of course we have this whole societal apparatuses that kill people endlessly, not to excuse 
people killing each other in war, etc., etc. But you know, there is this sort of thing of like wars, awful, and everything else. We just got rid of this one thing, but of course, it's a much more yeah. That's why I think that one of the one of the films we watched before, The Last Supper, is mm-hmm. more interesting in this yeah. way because it, that's like when li- liberals go, you know, become murderers, right? It's I mean, it's not the best film in the world, but it, but it pursues this, this idea, which is much more interesting than the simple liberal fantasy that, yeah, like as Benjamin says, the you know, it's the repressed violent military guy who does the bad thing, you know. I I know I agree. Yeah, that. that there are no there are no people who are not liberal, that everybody yeah. would be if they were just open with themselves. Exactly. And that the only reason that people aren't liberal is repression or some kind of psychological ailment or mental yeah. illness. <laughs> That's, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt the weakest part of me. Also he's he's sort of a Nazi or like he's got the Nazi plate, which is that you know, which is like the mark of Cain. Exactly. You know. <laughs> but of course Nazism is a uh, an emergent of liberalism itself, but we won't get into that. But yeah, it's yeah that was that's the that's the only part of it that sort of annoys me. But it is it's a very good film overall, you know. It's very yeah, well made. it's it's it is very interesting to look at it back back now. You know, however many years later it is. Um, yeah, it it does it does kind of stand up probably a lot more than other films from that period. <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys liked it. Yeah, this is a good choice. We've been we've been like doing a a choice each for a while. So this yeah, is we've been kind of going in a loop. This was my week. Yeah. Then next week will be Nina's, and then Helen's again. So if if you're thinking back, after Fake was Helen, and then uh, Blue Collar was Nina. Maybe we could do a, like a an analysis of our film choices after a while. <laughs> oh, after a while, I think yeah. there will be trends that will be visible at least to the audience, if not to us. Hopefully, we have the self awareness to. I think maybe some of the B sides we should do like kind of analysis sessions where one of us takes the couch and the yeah. You know, that would be fun. Why did you choose this film this week? Yeah, that, that would be great. Up. That, that would be great. <laughs> I would like that. That would be fun. Yeah, that um, would be fun. But I, I also, I think you're absolutely right, Nina, about the the fact that films or this sort of, I believe it's a studio film. You know, they they had real purchase culturally, and obviously we have things like you know massive hits on. Netflix like Tiger King or whatever but I think you know the average the average mainstream film does not have the same real sort of like um impact well cinemas cinemas don't have the same impact you know everyone would have gone to the cinema to see this film in the same three four week period or whatever you know like it's it's it just doesn't exist I mean there's a very generally bad film but has a brilliant opening scene with Lindsay Lohan called The Canyons I think where they just show all of the empty cinemas, and, and it's an amazing, like, five, ten minutes. It's one of the very, most brilliant bits of documentary footage um, that captures the end of a particular era, which is now accelerated again with the pandemic. And, yeah, that's why I like this film. Is but, it Paul Schrader? Is it Paul Schrader no, as well? Is, is he involved in it? I don't know. I, I just love Lindsay Lohan so much that um, it's it's sort of impossible for me to... Not like every, everything she does, um, even or especially. It is Paul Schrader, you're right. Yeah, good. Because I James think he's Dean. just yeah. brilliant, man. I love Paul Schrader. But yes, I have not seen that, but I have yeah. heard it's shit. But then maybe it's sort of culty shit. Sort of. I mean, well, well, obviously we watched a Paul Schrader film. I mean, the one the week you were uh, away. And so, yeah, no, you're right. It is Paul Schrader. How strange. I'd forgotten who he was. But, uh, well, that would explain, actually, the why the opening 10 minutes is so good. Because it's... The opening 10 minutes of Blue Collar as well is this kind of unbelievable scene of factory production. So actually, 
that's that's kind of fascinating. People would really, I think, there's still a lot of people in my generation who would really like the movie theaters to come back, mm. who would really like to go to movie theaters. Part of the problem is that the, the films that they have been putting out during coronavirus have been so unremittingly awful, just relentlessly terrible. And I Every couple of weeks I check because I want to. I want to go to a movie. I want to pay. I would like to support the local cinema. I, I want to do it. I do. And I look at the listings and I go, shitty Disney movie, shitty superhero movie, bunch of horror movies, and then just raw crap, just action movie yes. anchored by a middle-aged person who's a brand, you know, just a new version of the Jason Statham movie, a new version of the mm -hmm. Liam Neeson movie. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And it's always the same five or six things with different names. Do you know why? State tied capital. Literally, I can chart. I literally can chart. I think the year of my entry into doing this film stuff, beginning of the end, like, honestly, I've got loads of friends who work in crew and they just do endless, massive, massive, massive productions. And they are state sponsored now. And the organisations that were designed to protect film just just transfer state funds to attract massive corporations to film there in competition with everybody else. Best films are coming out of America, independent films, which is because the free market, rapacious capitalism is much more fair. And you, it requires um, small businesses, small production companies in order to make good stuff. And it's just so impossible now. Um, and also, I mean, Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> as well as being, you know, a horrendous sexual predator, was an extremely accomplished film producer who achieved things that nobody else achieves. And potentially, you know, because of the changing nature of the economy was part of the reason why he had to leave, because he was his films started to become worse. Like tulip fever was the beginning of the end for him. But anyway. So it was a, a punishment, an aesthetic punishment. Yes, exactly, exactly. The era, the era of good, widely viewed, well-made, um, independent film later taken on by, say, a, a, a distribution company or studio. Oh, what another thing that is absolutely hilarious that they do now for um, in order to qualify for um, the amount of finance that would marginally close the gap on the competition between you and a massive corporation is you have to have. Um, distribution in advance of making your independent film which is literally an oxymoron and impossible so helen what would you say the year was that the bottom fell out 2013 2014 2014 that was also the year the left went mental as well so well it's probably like, seriously 2014 is when when i really started to notice things politically but also i mean i had nothing to compare it to but definitely 2013 I left my previous job in 2013 and the beginning was much easier for me with what I was doing. And then suddenly I was like, yeah, what? And um, obviously there's a, there's a lag. So in 2014, there were a lot of very decent films, a lot of Weinstein company films that came out. Um, Grand Budapest Hotel, various things, but and obviously, you know, you have, you have the exceptions like um, Wes Anderson, et cetera, who, who, who managed to do their thing. But um Yes, it is. It, this is it's a political and it's a political and economic question. Um, but I, I think it's totally it's a total symbol of the way that um, 
you know, the shift from from capitalism to neo-feudalism, basically. Well, I mean, you know, the, the link between state and corporation is actually fascist. So you're basically saying that the film industry is making nothing other than fascist propaganda. Liberalism is dialectically related to fascism. Fascism is an outgrowth of liberalism. And liberal woke propaganda is the thing that, you know, tied with, is an emergent of economic conditions. And those same emerge, that same emergent, that same, those same conditions create the emergent of fascism. And it's the same, you know, they're dialectically, libidinally, you know, infinitely bound with one another. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I, like, I did some work a long time ago on the, the mountain films, which was a genre that sort of Lenny Riefenstahl was the major yeah. actress in before she became a filmmaker and she was Hitler's favourite actress. Mm -hmm. And um, I watched quite a lot of these Berg film and like, so these mountain films. And one of the most overriding aspects of them in a way is their kind of absolute confusion. They're lots of, their films ostensibly and, you know, about men climbing mountains and how it's great to sort of die for no reason. So they do these heroic things. It's very sort of romantic and very stupid. Um, and they kind of climb these mountains and they sort of, uh, they think that everyone else who lives in the village or the city or the town is like a, a valley pig or like, you know, an idiot because they don't understand the mountain. And, but they usually die on the mountain, right? So this is kind of, and this is kind of celebration of heroic, pointless death these films which makes sense is necessary sort of for world war ii <laughs> exactly nazism and but actually one of the other sort of genre features of them is they're very very confusing they make very little sense and i think a lot of films today like if you watch superhero films there's literally there's no sort of like plot development there's no character development they're actually very confusing the sound is often extremely bad like you can't even hear what they're saying yeah, and, it, and it's and they're kind of you know you think with all this technology and and good script writers you'd be able to make you know genuinely enjoyable films, but the the effect they often produce is one of like bored, confused frustration, which is often which is again like this kind of proto-fascist feeling, and so I think that they are literally churning out kind of neo-fascist films, right? Which which confuse at the level of emotion. And I think the thing is, you know, of course, the word fascist is thrown around so much. But I think, you know, that you let's say, let's say the canonical, let's say the lexical field of our age is, you know, revolves around not, not uh, like fascistic language. But like, I think that absolute, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that the word is directed wrongly, but that, it, you know, there is a correctness to the fact that we live in a fascistic age. And, you know, so talking about the logic thing, so I, I think narrative is a highly logical, you know, that there's, there's a logic to it and it, it works through through a form of logic. And so, you know, this is, this is the thing that like this horrible thing that you're trained to do something, the better that you are at it, the less well received you are by a capitalistic industry because capitalism is highly illogical. It, 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 you know, in its successes, its failure, it has to constantly fail. It cannot, it cannot be successful. It has to constantly fail. So, um, you know, you, 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 you know, you're trained to do certain things and to learn really well how to construct a logical narrative. And then that precise logic is the thing that is so offensive because it's like, oh, it's too philosophical or, you know, it's too whatever, but it's like you, but obviously, I'm I'm all I'm pro, you know, phenomenological or subjectival or looser or poetic films. But they are much more logical than what you get, which is sort of this like, you know, like carnage of who knows what. I, who I mean, and, and the funny thing is, as well, like, how's a child supposed to understand it? It's just like so confusing. Yeah, well, it's not. They're not supposed to understand it. The level of these things, narrative or you know, I think What's obscurantism being is. 
yeah, obscurantism is almost the point in a way. Like this, conf- this affect of confusion, and you know, is somehow what they're doing. It's like, yeah, if you're too clear, if you're too straightforward, if you're too rigorous, if you're too philosophical, or even if you're too poetical, if you're too beautiful, too surreal, too whimsical, you know, that's also bad. But somehow, yeah. this form of like bewildering obscurantism is is good and these are what mainstream films should be like i I always prefer to use the word totalitarian rather than fascist when describing liberalism because it's broader it doesn't cause people to make as many lazy comparisons with the nazi regime Uh, but yeah i think it i think it is totalitarian in the sense that liberalism is always predicated on offering a false pluralism liberalism says that it's committed to pluralism and yet of course liberalism can't permit illiberal sentiments or ideas so exactly. liberalism has to constantly curate its plural space, and therefore it relies on telling you you can think or believe or do whatever you want, while you can't, in fact, think or believe or do whatever you want. So it's a, a kind of hypocritical totalitarianism. Absolutely, <laughs> it's, it's totally oxymoronic the pluralism of uh, of liberalism because it is totalitarian precisely because it is not total. It does not accept difference and that which doesn't conform to it. It's like the the catalogue of catalogues that also is the ultimate catalogue that must list itself, but therefore then can't, you have to have a catalogue to anyway. Basically, (laughs) you can never have a totality. The only totality you can have is a dialectical one that includes lack, a lacking totality, like, and liberalism denies lack. So I think the the best argument that liberals have, that I've ever heard for liberalism is that because it's hypocritical, it at least avoids some of the uh, blatant cruelties that you get when the sword of the state is out and in the open uh, and being waved around in an honest way. Uh, at least when you have to pretend it's not there, you can't use it so flippantly. Uh, I think that's the best argument there is for liberalism, and there aren't very many good ones. Would you rather the wolf in sheep's clothing or the sheep in wolf's clothing? All right, we've come up to just over an hour. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B-side where, you know, for very small amounts of money, if you follow us on Patreon, you can (laughs) listen to us just talk to each other in a very, very flippant and unhinged way. All right. So we're going to go over there now. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.